This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. And you wrote... <laughs> It was a unique dichotomy, the degree to which girls and young women were expected to forge themselves into a model of submissive femininity, supposedly ordained by God, requiring a market of goods to define how and why they must do so, while men and some women built ministries and capital on the promise of Christian Christian cultural supremacy. Mm-hmm. I'd like to take a different angle on the context of, of this question. Most of, a, most of our listeners are not in this kind of church because they are in congregational leaders and clergy and moderate to progressive expressions. So it's easy for us to detach ourselves from this, pointing the fingers at the fundies without mm-hmm. looking at our own churches that can create microaggressions against women and girls. How might you challenge our churches to, to look closely at what those microaggressions might be? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, the Honorable Charles Qual, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, 
more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Sarah Stancorb. She is a writer with her work appearing in the Washington Post Magazine, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vogue, The Guardian, and Atlantic, among many others. She covers the intersection of religion, feminism, and politics. She is also a nonprofit consultant focusing on environmental, legal, and economic research. Thank, Sarah, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, before we get into uh, the book, which would be the bulk of our conversation today, um, you know, what would you want our audience to know about you? Oh, my. That's uh, open-ended. <laughs> I can get so many directions. I think probably that um, I was raised within the church. <clears throat> and it really, my faith meant a lot to me as a kid. I hold, um, one of my majors in college was in religion, and I also have a master's degree from the University of Chicago's Divinity School. So religion and faith and how people believe has always been a major curiosity and question for me. Um, and then likely one other thing I should mention <clears throat> since this is audio, is that I have a vocal disorder that I'm sure they can hear. It's called spasmodic dysphonia. If they were um, NPR listeners, they may know Diane Ream. It's the same thing. So if my voice sounds a little shaky, that's why. But um, I think in, in my work as a journalist, I often do speak to people who have some natural trepidation in their voices, and I don't know, maybe it puts me on the right wavelength hmm. to be a ready listener. So how does one get into reporting at the intersection of religion, feminism, and politics? Was that like a conversation with a guidance counselor in high school? No, 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 no. Oh, it's funny you asked that question. My son just took his aptitude test in high school, and that reminded me that I was recommended to either be a stewardess or farmer. I am neither of those things. So for me, getting into this line of work was probably a series of happy accidents. I was writing essays and doing reporting mostly in the social enterprise space, so do good businesses. And I had interviewed a crowdfunder who emailed me after the story to say, hey, we have something different on our website right now. And it was the story of a woman named Vicki Harrison who was trying to raise money for living expenses after divorcing from her husband. She had loads of children. She had lived a quiverful lifestyle and was trying to dramatically change her life while supporting, I think, seven children. And once I met Vicki, I... Um, became increasingly interested 
in this pocket of people and believers that I have been pretty unaware of growing up. And over time, realized that, you know, these degrees that I had in religion and the thought I had put it into my own faith was something that I didn't have to bury, um, but actually something that could inform my day-to-day work. And from there, I became more and more of a religion reporter. And um, eventually, when you study women in American conservative Christianity, you, I guess, may end up where I ended up. Well, let's let's dive right into it right there. Um, you have this new extensive book, Disobedient Women. This book mm-hmm. examines the women who exposed abuse, brought down powerful pastors, and ignited an evangelical reckoning. You wrote, abuse is a unique violence when paired with faith. It takes people at their most vulnerable, raw, and innocent, and attempts to dominate a secret place. There's a loneliness in people's voices as they recount spiritual wounds, whether they came from pastoral manipulation a cult-like control, or childhood rape. Mm-hmm. Take us into um, how you you know, began to um, learn about these stories and, and why it was important for you to write about them. Yeah. So the story I just mentioned about Vicki Garrison, I believe that was back in 2013, so about a decade ago. And Vicky was running a website called No Longer Quivering, which aimed to explain to people what that lifestyle is. Um, and if your listeners are not aware, um, if you know of the TV family, the Duggars, um, they are often kind of treated as the poster family for this lifestyle, where one of the built-in ideals is reproducing as many children as possible, each a blessing from God. And the more children you have, the more blessings you have as part of an attempt to build an army of Christians for God. So there's a threat of Christian nationalism built right into family planning. Um, but knowing Vicky and learning about her story on her website, where by that time I met her, she was trying to help women considering leaving or considering changing the way that they lived. I found links to other websites with other women who were at that point blogging about their own experiences. And I started to unravel just ministries I'd never heard of, teaching young girls, a certain submissive lifestyle wrapped in purity culture. So I'm expected to be, quote, stay-at-home daughters and live under their father's authority until they can be transferred to their husbands. And really, at first, it did seem quite surreal. It was uh, a world that was not my own world. But in talking to these women, I started to understand some of the political um, dynamics, at least political interests, based into those same ministries. And I also 
got to know many women who, due to the way they were raised, felt as though they could not complain, they could not speak up about abuse that they had endured. But once they got online and they found that there were other people who had experienced the same things they had, that galvanized them and they gave them the energy to try to either inform or directly help other people trying to leave spiritual environments that were hurting them too. I want to go back to that um, quote for just a second. Abuse yeah. is a unique violence when paired with faith. It takes people at their most vulnerable, raw, and innocent and attempts to dominate a secret place. This is such a, a powerful outlining quote. Um, mm -hmm. Can you can you flesh it out a bit more in the type of abuse that we're talking about here? Yeah. So um, many of these, let me actually I'll slow down. <clears throat> Some of these examples in the book are examples of women in environments where the clergy member or the minister was not to be questioned. So that inappropriate or assaulting behavior and became almost normalized or was covered up. So that's one set of circumstances. There are other examples where teachings that were considered part of their church. Um, for example, if a lot of people at, um, within a particular church or ministry love James Dobson, they need to have a lot of families raising their children in ways that included a lot of corporal punishment. And if it happens within a family that is also uniquely socially isolated, you wind up with young people growing up in, in homes where when they act up or when they question, just question authority, the result is physical violence. And that is paired with a sense that, that violence is justified, that violence is necessary for positive spiritual outcomes for them. The parents doing this, hitting their children, following people like uh, Michael Debbie Pearl, they strike their children believing this is necessary to keep them disciplined because otherwise they could fall into sin and your the short-term physical punishment is in exchange for securing their eventual salvation. So uh, there's, a, there's a range of people in these circumstances, uh, women who feel they must reproduce one baby after another, no matter what happens to their bodies due to the books they picked up at their homeschool conventions or that other women in the local women's ministry have you given them. But it's part of this broader framework that when, it, when these rules are adopted by individuals, within their families, it's, it's like 
you have to follow the rule. You have to follow your authority if that's your minister or these well-known figures within evangelicalism writing these books. You must follow what they tell you in order to be obedient to God. And what you're actually enduring is either spiritual abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. But it's got that, that spiritual justification baked in so that speaking up against it feels as though you're questioning God. And I think that's why it's so uniquely lonely. And because others around you are not crying out over the same weight of pain, even if they are living in similar circumstances, it feels as though it's just you. And many times when people do speak up, they're ostracized and they're, you know, not only do they leave the church, all of the people that used to be, they're very important social, they're friends, the people they raise their kids with, they lose them too. So there's a loneliness when you're inside. And even if you try to get out, there's a different loneliness. And all the while, you can feel as though you're betraying God by trying to protect yourself. We can't go any further without talking about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. You know, in, in, in your coverage of this movement's abused and abusers, what are the most common forms uh, of abuse that you, you came across? You know, because this expands both in and outside of, you know, and we're going to get to the, um, the Duggards back here in just a second, but it, it yeah. doesn't just include um, those, those groups. No, no. Um, and I, I did try to show a gamut of experiences, but very frequently I have come across forms of sexual abuse in my reporting. Um, and there's, there are varieties of that too. Um, so Jules Woodson is one example in the book. She uh, was attending her youth group, had a youth pastor that everyone admired. He taught their true love true love weights classes. Um, he's one of the people who taught her sex is only for marriage, sexual activities only for marriage. So when he requested that she perform certain sexual acts, she said that meant he wanted to marry her. Like those things were so wedded for her. Um, but he was also her pastoral authority. And I went through her teenage Bible with her. And there's so much marginalia 
about being obedient to authority, where I think often it gets forgotten that in some contexts that the idea of consent is much different than yes or no. If you feel like God demands obedience of you with a certain figure with your minister, it's incredibly difficult to have any sort of distance to even know that you're able to say no. So there are cases like that. Um, Krista Brown is another example of someone who was assaulted for months by um, a minister at her church. And for years, she categorized it as an affair. Um, she blamed herself. And then only in her 50s, after the Catholic Church uh, sex crisis, sexual abuse crisis, did she, and when her daughter became a teenager too, and she realized if someone in an authority position demanded these things of my daughter, I certainly would not find that to be an affair. That's only then did she realize really the balance of what happened. Um, and many states do have laws on the books prohibiting clergy um, from trying to entice um, members of the churches into sexual acts for these reasons. It's a complicated thing. Um, on the other hand, a different example in the book is Bill Gothard, who was, it, it's for people who were not of IBLP, the Institute in Basic Life Principles, or um, raises with his homeschool curriculum, it's hard to understand how great his influence was. But I've had multiple people describe him at the height of his influence as the evangelical pope. And he's been accused by dozens and dozens of people of basically hand-selecting young teenage girls to come to the headquarters of IBLP, getting them alone, touching them inappropriately, rubbing his feet on them. There's a range of accusations. But yet, and in that case, people during that time could not fathom if the person doing this was someone as spiritually revered as Bill Gothard. It, I must be misinterpreting, I must be misunderstanding this this discomfort that I'm feeling, this urge to get away. Well, that, there's something wrong with me because he's such a fine, godly man. Um, but I think in all of those examples, you can see how someone in a position of spiritual power has the ability to skew what's actually happening to a person and make it exceedingly difficult for them to speak up. Yeah, let's stay right there with, with Gothard. Um, you yeah. know, it, while many might not have watched the show, most know the name, the Duggards, um, you know, a family of 20 plus kids that had an extreme home makeover and then a reality TV show. Walk us through the connection between the Duggards and the and, and the Gothards. So, uh, I mean, I, I think 
how should I explain this? So one of the ways people within Bill Gothard's ministry got together was in extremely large conferences. So these could be homeschool conferences. I mean, the man had training centers all over the world. Um, people would also just watch his lessons on VHS tapes. So he, there were a lot of ways, but you could get together in person. And the Duggars became one of these key families that would be raised up and put on stage. They would talk about um, the significance of his teachings in their lives. Um, I think until the Duggars were on TV, many people had no idea anyone lived the way the Duggars do. And certainly there's there are a more extreme example. Um, when the uh, initial accusations against Josh Duggar um, surfaced back in, I think it was like 2016, um, his sisters went on TV and had to kind of explain away why why there hadn't been proper legal action when the family realized that he had molested um, a babysitter and some of his sisters. Meanwhile, Josh Tiger was sent to training camp one of Bill Gothard's to do work and in interviews, news articles at the time, Gothard tried to explain that, well, Josh hadn't had a proper relationship with Jesus Christ and how through the ministry he did. Um, after the many allegations against Bill Gothard also had surfaced and he did he did um, have to resign. The Duggars were not the official heads of IBLP, his ministry, but in a lot of ways they became stand-ins. Um, Jim Bob and Michelle would speak at the big conferences every year. They were the, the people in the limelight for what remained of the ministry. So I think Gothard was a singular figure who people would follow his recommendations on everything from what their children should read to how they should wear their own hair, um, what music you could listen to, every detail of your life he had a formula for. After he left the remnants of that ministry, because the directors were so important and because they were such an obvious um, example of his urging people to keep having these babies, I think they, they became a very good stand-in for everything that he had represented, and perhaps more safely wholesome um, until more, more um, information came out about their family and the abuse within that family. Um, and, and I should just add that I think there is a degree to which other families that did also have situations of abuse within their own families who were part of Gothard's ministry, they were unaware 
that this happened to anyone else. There was a, a certain uh, beautiful Christian pristine face that people showed. They were trying to be good examples of the positive outcomes people could have by being part of this ministry. And once there were websites, eventually online blogs, um, Recovering Grace is a key one where people shared what was happening behind the scenes, what they were living through, what having a father who is the um, the spiritual authority over the over the home, what that can be like if that it's not a solid loving person. As those stories came out, I think to me and to many of those folks who had grown up there, it became. Um, clear that that structure of unquestioned authority at home could also hide a lot of damaging behavior. So whether it was covering up what Josh Dreger did, or it was not being able to speak up about what your father did, the, the situation of that harm and being it, it be kept quiet. That that result was the same. Yeah, I've, uh, a lot more people have become familiar with this story as a result of the Happy Shiny People docu series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you, as you were just kind of alluding to there, do you get a sense that well-meaning people saw these things and just ignored it, or they didn't recognize it for what it was? And and what are the symptoms or markers of a church culture that allows this kind of abuse to fester? So, I mean, if we're focusing only on Gothard, from my sources, many felt uncomfortable and wondered kind of what's happening here, but also felt obligated to wave it off because I'm only him. He's he's too elevated. He can't be doing something bad to me. Um, on the other hand, there were a few who did want to speak up, and there were a lot of roles within the ministry against gossiping and making allegations. And so, if you spoke to someone about how you're feeling uncomfortable about what happened, well, and you had committed the sin of gossip, you would you would immediately be sent home from headquarters if that's what this was happening. And people would tell a lot of awful stories about you. Um, so there was um, that, that element of secrecy. I think that is something overriding that I have heard in a number of environments that need not to gossip and that speaking out about abuse is a form of gossip and therefore sin. I think that is used in many cases to keep what's actually going on very quiet. Um, In other environments, something that came up repeatedly in my interviews with people from the, uh, what was called Sovereign Grace Ministries, it's Sovereign Grace Church. But um, when living in a family with within a high control church, but also with the father as a singular authority figure, if in those homes, 
there was abuse that the church learned about. So say the father was, say there was domestic violence. When the church learned about it, even if it did make its way to the police, which was definitely not something that you could count on the church to make happen, but even if it were the courts, even if the dad went away to jail, then the church would pressure the wife to bring him back. Even if he sexually assaulted one of the children, there was pressure to bring him back into the home because there was this uh, kind of equalizing understanding of sin where the sin he committed was, yes, bad. But then if you were unwilling to forgive, you would be sinning too. And there was a, like a balancing of a spiritual equation that did not take into account what that would feel like for the victim or what risk that could be reintroducing back into the home. So, and, and I think for some of us thinking about like anyone giving that kind of advice, you just like are shocked or maybe you roll your eyes. But this is the sort of advice people are willing to follow shows the amount of authority those church leaders had over the everyday decisions of people within the church body. And I think that um, inability to question people in those roles, even when something is to the, to the level of criminality, that is something that I have seen repeatedly as well. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You wrote, uh, when I began reporting, I never anticipated covering religion. It still hurt too much to talk about faith. Are you able to take us a little deeper into your personal journey in and out of this movement and how it's, um, you know, affected your, um, you know, your drive to report on it? Sure. So I was a very mainstream Christian. I was Presbyterian, like Presbyterian USA, and then Methodist. Um, I thought maybe I would become a minister. And then I started attending 
a um, Bible study with a buddy of mine and kind of just accidentally fell into a small little evangelical subculture where I lived. And I, I desperately wanted to be good. I wanted to do what God wanted of me. And suddenly there were plenty of new rules I had been unaware of um, pertaining to what it meant to be a good Christian and what it meant to be Christian at all. And I had a brief period of really wanting to follow every rule that I could. And then when I um, mentioned, you know, there were a couple of the elements I mentioned to my good friend that was just attending these Bible studies with me that I felt a call to ministry. And he gently let me know, no, God, God does not allow that. That's unbiblical. Women cannot be ministers, which raised a red flag on um, that, that idea. One, because I grew up with a female minister, but also... It made me wonder, what is this God and what is this understanding of the Bible that I've been absorbing? If that's if that's really the God of all creation has limits on who can lead and who can feel um, motivated to spend their life caring for people and being part of that that work. So that was a piece of it. But then when I went off to college, I um, took an actual Bible course and we read the entire Bible. We looked into you know, source criticism, that sort of thing. We learned the history of the time period around when pieces of the Bible were written and when they were redacted. And this Faith had been a lot to me. It had been very exploratory until my brief interlude with a more literalistic form of faith. Um, I had that, that curiosity still. And by the time I encountered this wealth of information that for a lot of my friends just made them even more faithful, for me, what my faith had become had so rigid that all of these this new information and these questions, it just broke. And I spent many years mourning the loss of my faith. Um, and this was pre-internet and pre-blogs of people and uh, Twitter of people talking about deconstruction. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is me and this is only happening to me and how awful that this happened to me, but I think it gave me um, some inbuilt sensitivity to people who are clinging to their faith, because that's what I wanted to do, and I'm so impressed by people who can be critical structures that other human beings make within religious environments. And, and say, well, that's not good. That doesn't mean my faith's not good. So those, those people I am very keen to know. But I'm also very empathetic for people like me who have faith and mattered a lot to them 
and lost it. And I think in the in between is there's a lot of reality. And my my job is to collect stories that are as true as I can gather. And that both both sides of that are real, both sides of that are what's happening quite frequently in our country right now. One of my favorite chapters of the book um, was is on one of our dear friends, Rachel Held Evans, who passed in 2019. Um, we recently had Rachel's sister, Amanda, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we discussed was that while we celebrate the proliferation of post-evangelical women um, who are authors and journalists today, you know, Rachel was somewhat of a pathfinder for, for many of these people. Mm-hmm. What, what made Rachel's writing so crucial to the reckoning we're now seeing within evangelicalism? Oh, you are the first person to ask me that question. I'm so glad to have that question. So many of the names in the book, I think, found their way online through Rachel. They found her blog or they found her books, and they realized this wasn't only happening to them. That questioning and being appalled by what some people claimed was faith and demanded by faith, that that this wasn't just them. And she was so eloquent in how she put things, and she was funny, and she took things that were sad and at least helped you find the light in it. And she also made it very normal to talk about all of these things and to put it on the internet. And then in those comments, you could find other people. She really was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, building out community. And I, I don't know if that was a goal, but that's what happened, just given the functionality of the platforms of where she was. Um, and that she was so outspoken, I think gave people a lot more courage to speak out themselves. Um, I think in many, many ways, people modeled their behavior after her, at least for a while. Um, on the other side, and this is later in the book, when she passed away, I think that affected people in ways that some are still really sorting through. But many of those communities that came up under Rachel, where it was really driven in those grassroots elements, it was really often driven by women. And so that carved out a space that a lot of them simply did not have in their churches. And they being together, that community was forged. And then around the same time that she did pass away, other folks were coming online and talking about deconstruction, talking about being evangelicals, and really being critical in ways that that original group felt like... Not that they were being squashed, but that um, the the movement that felt like theirs was expanding maybe faster than they expected. And that feeling intersected with her death. And in grief, some of these forging new groups collapsed into infighting 
And I had multiple people tell me, really, when they look back now, it's because so many people were simply devastated. And they felt like they lost their leader. They lost that wise voice that they could always come home to. And I think the ripple effects stayed with a lot of people. It's <clears throat> the, it certainly <clears throat> thinking about um, whether women can lead <laughs> in faith. She certainly did. You know, it's, it's easy to look backwards, especially now when so many are being vocal about these abuses to think that it was an easy path for someone like Rachel and many others to take. You wrote moral outrage over their church's cavalier attitude towards abuse had transformed good church women into survivors um, that have been called badasses and journalists like me have dubbed armchair investigators and watchdogs. Mm -hmm. What makes uncovering and reporting on abuse from within religious, you know, religious movement like evangelicalism so difficult? What are, what are those um, great towers of authority that, that tend to, mm -hmm. you know, don't go quietly into the night? Oh my. <laughs> so um, I, I feel like, well, do you want me to answer as a reporter or describe what it's like for the survivors when on their own they begin reporting on what they've learned? Yeah, I think both would be okay. immeasurably insightful. So I'll start with the survivors. And I think a prime example is just the the hell that Krista Brown has gone through with the Southern Baptist Convention for like a decade and a half. Um, when she first spoke up, it was about her own case. And she simply you know, just wanted a little bit of money. <clears throat> Sorry, she just wanted a little bit of money to cover her therapy, which SBC offers to pastors to be reinstalled after abuse, but out of their survivors. And she wanted you know, like a meditation garden. But during her initial civil suit, she learned that in Texas, the general convention of SBC kept a list. They had a list of credibly, credibly accused abusers. And she started to demand that that be made public so families could make their own choices with some knowledge and the churches could do the same. That did not happen, so she created a database and used publicly available documents to just to keep, um, just to keep the data available in a way that people could look it up. All the while, she was maligned by um, executive staff and executive members of SBC, the language people used about her, it's, you would think she'd been say, sent straight from Satan to destroy SBC. And really, her aim was to protect the people in the congregations of SBC churches. Speaking up definitely took an incredible toll on her. Um, 
I know a number of advocates, um, simply advocates, some survivor advocates, who have this swirl of chaos. They're helping people talk about the worst thing that ever happened to them. They are gathering evidence to make sure what they are sharing is true. They're carrying the weight of so much trauma from so many individuals, and they often feel like if they don't do it, no one else will. And then at the same time, they have a family member who's dying, or they are um, dealing with cancer themselves, and somehow they feel like they have to keep going, and sometimes it's not able to, um, but then they come back, and it's this version of the human spirit I just find so daunting because it's it's motivated by this uh, sense that you have to do what's right even if it costs you this much. And I think many people live their lives in a way they would never take that many sacrifices on. As a reporter, it is nowhere near that. Um, journalists are now maligned in a lot of the same circles that um, these advocates are as well. Um, I think I do have a crucial distance as I have not lived through what many of my sources have lived through. But at the same time, I mean, I'll be honest, while writing this book, I was doing my reporting going back through years of notes and transcripts and court documents at the same time that both of my parents were sick and I just with dementia and my father who was an abusive alcoholic when I was a kid uh, and he passed away all in the middle of it and I think that balancing act between living through something difficult having that pull up a lot of my own painful childhood memories and balancing these stories from so many sources it really gave me a taste of what it is like for these advocates um but then they also have the fact that a church they grew up loving now ISIS hates them <laughs> and that hurts in a way that I don't experience Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. In podcast um, previous conversations with people like Beth Allison Barr, Kristen Kobe's Dumay, um, yeah. they've laid out the theological framework that creates this kind of hyper masculinity and patriarchy. And you wrote, mm -hmm. it was a unique dichotomy, the degree to which girls and young women were expected to forge themselves into a model of submissive femininity, supposedly ordained by God, requiring a 
market of goods to define how and why they must do so, while men and some women built ministries and capital on the promise of Christian Christian cultural supremacy. Mm-hmm. I'd like to take a different angle on the context of of this question. Most of us, most of our listeners are not in this kind of church because they are in congregational leaders and clergy and moderate to progressive expressions. So it's easy for us to detach ourselves from this, pointing the fingers at the fundies without mm-hmm. looking at our own churches that can create microaggressions against women and girls. How might you challenge our churches to to look closely at what those microaggressions might be? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, since you brought her up, Beth Allison Barr, I think it was a week ago, was um, very vocally sharing new data um, that I believe was published in Christianity Today. Don't, don't keep that on if that's wrong. <laughs> but um, just the vast number of women working at ministries in unpaid roles. So if you're at a church where the men who contribute are paid and the women who have jobs in ministry, but those jobs are treated as a volunteer position, um, if it's because it's only with the children or it's only for the women's ministry, when other ministries are valued monetarily, I think that's sure one place to start. Um, I think considering just what what books are encouraged within your church. Um, I have, I'm actually going to be part of um, an ecumenical event hosted by an American Baptist pastor in my town, they're flying in Krista Brown. He got grant money from his denomination to talk about abuse within church environments. And I think being willing to talk about issues that not do not only affect women for sure, but when you talk about these issues, you open up a space for anyone who's experienced abuse to be able to talk about it. So I think be mindful in church-related book clubs or even what you keep in your church library, that the information that you're endorsing, even tacitly by having it available, is open to the reality of all of the people in your pews. Um, I think that's very important as well. There's this powerful quote that I'd love to have you take deeper, which is, I don't know where the church goes next, either the white evangelical patriarchal form or the one trying to survive the messy bleeding all over it. Um, We've had decades and decades of big profit margins and hope traded in good faith for bad. The church isn't my business. I wish it weren't a business. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there and what you anticipate for What's next for the church? <laughs> so uh, I, I'm honestly not sure. I have a number of friends who happen to be clergy and they're living what I see in statistics and that's fewer and fewer people showing up, going to church 
make it a part of what their family just does. Um, the monetization of faith and the way that people, the, I think part of the way people get in these positions where they claim authority that is unearned, so they act as that they can counsel people with no background in counseling and no training, no understanding of what that would mean, or um, become head of a big church because they can give a very good sermon and they're colorful, they're interesting, but that does not necessarily mean they're equipped to deal with people in crisis. There's this sense that if someone can like, play the role of a pastor up on a big stage with uh, you know, dry eyes and smoke, that they automatically know what God is speaking and can convey that, that directly to people. And I think because there have been enough examples of people elevated quickly into these positions and grasping to hold on to them. In a number of the cases that I have reported on, and this is not something I say is fact, this is just me sussing out um, similarities. It's almost as if because their, um, their reputation is part of what proves their authority over the church that can be easily manipulated and the protection of that reputation, which keeps the entire structure going, that keeps the church bringing in people, that keeps the church growing, that helps you plant churches, helps you make more money. All of that is based on reputation. And I think that's why cover-up can be such a convenient thing to do because any any flaw in your reputation not only puts at risk your ability to act in that role of authority over the entire church body or however many churches you're over, but it also threatens the bottom line associated with all of that and the comfortable living the folks in the environment live in. As for the future of the church, that that is so often the model, I think, is troubling. And I think we'll continue seeing stories like those in my book, um, unless we have some sort of reworking of what it means to be thriving as a church. The other thing that I've been kind of, um, I guess, academically interested in for years is that for generations, um, when, and it, with the exception of Sikhs, I believe, otherwise, in any religious environment, women are more religious than men. And women, whether they're paid adequately or not, women are often those who bring the kids to church. They're the ones who invest in instilling the faith in the next generation. They get them baptized. They make your pancakes for your pancake preference. And in America, as people have been deconstructing, as politics has become so wedded with what it means to be part of the faith and people have rejected that, we've had this pulling away from identification with being a Christian. And just recently, with, well, not just recently, with millennials, the number of women disaffiliating started to match that of men. 
and now Gen Z we're seeing more women leaving than men. And I feel like the church is bleeding away its main constituents. And because folks are not dealing with all these other issues that do affect women to a higher degree, it, it, the bottom's falling out. And I don't know if people understand that this could be one of the major reasons why. Our guest is Sarah Stancorb. The book is Disobedient Women. You can stay connected with her by visiting sarahstancorb.com. Sarah, it's been an incredible honor to visit with you. Thank you for challenging us to see that disobedience is not wrong when you defy those doing harm. It might be the thing that saves the rest of us in the end. Thank you. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.